welcome to another episode of Working Music. This is episode number two, recorded February 6th, 2020. Enjoy. Hey, hey, hey. Welcome back to the second episode of Working Music, the podcast uh, pretty much for anybody who's uh, working in the live music industry in any form whatsoever. Um, if anybody's listened to the first episode, which might be a little bit hard because it's currently not up on Spotify or iTunes or anything like that yet, still waiting for my podcast people to make that happen, but it should happen very soon. But episode one is up on anchor.fm or via our Facebook page, uh, Working Music, and sometime this week I'll have it also integrated with our website, which of course is workingmusic.com.au. And emails for any feedback is my say at workingmusic.com.au if you've got anything to say about any of my episodes whatsoever or if you want to contribute, you've got uh, something interesting that I might like to share with everybody, uh, tips, reviews, anything you want, alternatives to my suggestions on stuff or my take on anything that I've been talking about. Of course, last week... We talked about the decline of the music industry, especially here in Australia, of the live music industry. I talked about what I perceived some of the the problems involved with our live music industry here in Australia. And I certainly would love to hear from people from overseas, from other countries, and tell me a little bit about your live music industry over there so that I may share with everybody and we can get a bit of an idea of what it's like globally and not just locally, because, uh, you know, we have a podcast here that is a global commodity. Anybody can listen, so anybody can have a say. So we did talk about that. Uh, talked a little bit about iPads, people using iPads on stage. Is it a good thing? Was it a bad thing? My opinion is it's a good thing in its place, providing, of course, it doesn't detract from the show. But you can hear all about that in the last episode anyway. And if you want to have your say, of course, send us an email and tell me what you think about iPads on stage. The last topic I topped, uh, touched on last week was dodgy operators in any form in this music industry. Managers, agents, promoters, people who provide services to the industry. Uh, people, there seems to be quite a substantial number of areas where people can leech off the industry and, and make their couple of bob or sometimes a lot more at the expense of others. So we talked a little bit about that. Would certainly love to hear your stories on those takes. Now, starting off this week, a little bit of sad news. My poor old MacBook has uh, decided it's going to almost give you, give up the ghost it, uh, it died on me the other night and I've been lucky enough to actually, I managed to get it going again long enough to copy all my files off, which included, of course, the intro music and my logos and stuff for working music. So I was very happy to get all that stuff off. My MacBook is eight years old now and does have quite a number of dead pixels across the screen, nothing overly dramatic but it was certainly getting on in time and I, I have noticed that the even the HDMI port that's on it, I think it fails to work probably 90% of the time actually. Um, but funnily enough, I've actually managed to get it running again and it's sitting here right beside me 
And as long as I don't turn it off, it's all good. So I've had to set up the screen so the screen doesn't turn off because that's the problem. The screen goes off, it doesn't want to come back on. Everything else keeps going, no screen. So I don't know what's going on there. Definitely time for a new MacBook sometime later this year. And uh, I'll keep holding out as long as I can, even if I have to go across to my PC laptop. But sadder news than that here in Australia anyway is another long-time music store has just gone into liquidation and closed its doors. Cosmic Music in Western Australia, which has been operating for approximately 50 years, or a little more, has just decided that they can no longer operate and uh, they've been forced to close their doors. No doubt the, the trend of buying stuff online, eBay being the major culprit, but not just eBay anymore when you've got uh, things like AliExpress, uh, Amazon is uh, making headwave. It's just so easy now to sit here at your computer Find what you want, especially shop around because you can get the best deals just by searching and going through each each different online store until you find the absolute bottom price uh, that you can pay for something. Unfortunately, the bricks and mortar stores just can't compete with that. They, you know, they have to. Uh, they've got electricity bills. They've got rent to pay. They've got staff to pay. Um, they have to keep stock in the store in order to entice people to come in and it gets gets harder and harder to decide what stock they're going to keep in store because while that stock's sitting there, that's that's their capital tied up. That's their money. They can't do anything else with it and there it lies. So again, over the past five to ten years, music stores that have been around for as long as I can remember, have just been falling over one by one, making it even harder for musicians who just want to go in and browse and, and pick up a guitar or, or you know, play the instrument before they buy it, just even harder. But I think uh, times are changing. We're certainly changing the way, the way we shop, the way we buy stuff. And it would appear that, you know, even guitarists, a lot more guitarists are quite happy to just order a guitar online, have it show up at their door, and they're happy and off they go. Now, that's probably a bit hit and miss when you go with some of the cheaper brands. One would expect, when you're talking higher-end guitars, you would expect the quality to be just the same whether you order online or order in a store. But there's still a lot of variables that come into it, and freight being one of them, having an expensive guitar freighted to you you are going to do nothing but worry until it gets to your door and you open it up and make sure that it's all in one piece and freight companies haven't dropped it kicked it rolled it across the tarmac at an airport you know what i'm talking about baggage handlers probably make a sport out of seeing how far they can throw musical instruments or what they can do differently to them i don't know that's probably not true. But there's definitely something to be said for musical instruments when you're taking them on a, on a flight. We've all had that experience. And hopefully for most of us it turns out okay, but for some, not so. Um, I've seen some absolute tragic destruction 
of treasured, beloved musical instruments that just are beyond repair, irreplaceable, and gone. Just like the music stores that are going. What do you think about that? What's it, what's it like where you're from? I know in smaller towns it's even harder for there may be just the one music store, but even that one music store who is servicing such a smaller population, they are struggling to keep their doors open because it's, even in smaller towns people are quite happy to wait a few days, a week, for something to be freighted to them if it's going to save them 5 or $10. And that's just a sign of the times. I call it swings and roundabouts. Everything is linked to everything else. So by us musicians purchasing online, we're taking business away from those music stores that we would have otherwise gone to. I'm not even sure if I have a local music store where I live anymore. Um, there was one here for quite a while. And then one day I just noticed they were gone. But, I mean, I shouldn't complain. I probably stepped in there two or three times the whole time I've lived here. And again, that's because online is just so easy. And uh, nine times out of ten, so much cheaper. So, what are we going to talk about this week? Well, let's start off by talking about organisations who collect your royalties. Now, here in Australia, we have an organisation called APRA, which is the Australian Performing Rights Association. Now, being a member of your local performing rights association, it can have many benefits. Now, some people assume that only people who write music can be members of these things, and, well, this is not exactly an accurate assumption. Here in Australia, APRA AMCOS offers many beneficial services to musicians of all kinds. So if you're out there playing live as a musician anywhere, you can join this organisation and you, you're entitled to the rights just like any other musician, whether or not you've written music in any way, shape or form. One of the great advantages here in Australia uh, of being a member of APRA is the luggage allowance when you're flying with airlines, when you're an APRA member. This is a very good advantage for travelling musicians who want to carry gear with them and you know airlines do restrict you to the number of bags that you can take and the weight of those bags as well here in australia apra members who fly with virgin and qantas get a, an extra allowance now on virgin being an apra member allows you to check in up to four bags with a total weight of those four bags being 64 kilos with any one of those bags allowed to be up to 32 kilos. So, uh, speaking personally for myself, um, when flying as an audio engineer, I take a console with me, and that console weighs in at 29 kilos. So that's absolutely perfect with the APRA allowance. And it also allows me to bring three other bags. So I have a you know, bag for clothes and so forth, and then I have another bag for... Uh, my stage rack and anything else that I need to to accompany my console and sometimes even microphones depending on where I'm going. So th that's a really good advantage. On Qantas, the APRA members are allowed three pieces of checking baggage 
but unfortunately their weight limit of each bag is set to only 23 kilos. So a little more restrictive on Qantas as opposed to Virgin, which is a bit of a pain because if I have to take my console on a Qantas flight, generally it's going to cost more money regardless. But all the same, it's still worth having that membership and, and to have that added benefit. Now, you can go to the APRA website and find out what other benefits you can be entitled to as uh, that you can get discounts on things like studio time and equipment, publications and subscriptions, uh, there's uh, music marketing, web services, music courses, business services, uh, music insurance. So there's, there's a lot of, definitely a lot of beneficial stuff to becoming a member of APRA, AMCOS. Their website is apraamcos.com.au, so that's A-P-R-A-A-M-C-O-S.com.au. Get over there, have a look, become a member. It costs nothing to, to sign up, and you can get loads of benefits from that. Now, one of the biggest benefits of being a member of APRA, if you are a songwriter, especially if you're in a band and you're out there playing your songs that you've written to live audiences then you get to do a thing called a live performance return once a year. And what you need to do is you just keep track of what songs you played on what date and how many times, so forth. Uh, once again, on the APRA website, they explain the live performance returns. But the actual gist of the whole thing is at the end of the financial year, or whatever the date is that they do the cutoff, you submit your live performance return to APRA and then come November they pay you royalties for playing your music live to live audiences. Now some of you might go well how does that work because I was out playing and you know we got paid a little bit of money for playing already. Well the way it works is live music venues pay a license fee I guess I would call it um, for being able to have live music in their venue. So they pay a fee to APRA every year for the right to have live music being played in their venue. Just the same as shopping centres and anywhere else where you hear music being played in public. They all pay an APRA licence every year. Now what happens is APRA gathers all this money together and then they distribute it between all their registered musicians based on the songs that you have played through the year. So it's, I'm not really sure how the calculation works, but you get a, a percentage, maybe a very small percentage. But nonetheless, um, come November, you get a little bit of money in your bank for playing your own songs. And if you're a really hard-working live originals band out there who's lucky enough to be playing fairly regularly all over the country, whether it be festivals, whether it be um, just small little venues in little towns, if you're just out there touring really hard trying to get your music out there, this is just another way where you get back from what you're putting in. So it's definitely something not to be missed out on because this you're entitled to these royalties for your music. So that's about all I can tell you at the moment um, on the topic of APRA and if you're 
in another country, you have an organisation over there that probably does exactly the same type of thing and perhaps has extra benefits, maybe less benefits, whatever the case may be, send us an email, let us know um, so that we know how things work in other countries. Always very interesting to learn these things. So next off, let's move right along and for what do we what can we discuss now let's look in the direction of music tech and i think this week let's have a quick discussion about iems in-ear monitors um absolutely uh, to me a fantastic addition to my live shows and also from a sound engineer's point of view, a fantastic addition to a stage when I'm trying to get a nice mix out the front and I don't have to battle with all those fallback speakers throwing extra sound all around the place. It just makes life so much easier. But the real, the real, the real point of these in-ears is A, to protect the hearing of the musicians on stage because you don't need to have a thousand watts of fallback blowing your head off. You also don't have to stand next to a, a cracking snare drum for three hours straight in your right ear if you're a bass player. Another great advantage of in-ear monitors is especially for singers who can have their voice right where they need it all the time, regardless of where they move on the stage, they can hear themselves. And because they can hear themselves, they don't need to strain as hard with their vocals to get out what they want to get out. So their voice lasts longer, they have an easier night, and you get to the end of your gig and you take them out and you're like, it doesn't feel like I've just done a two-hour or three-hour show. I'm, I can still hear everything. This is fantastic. But the, the best advantage, of course, is you can still talk. You still have a voice left. I think they're a great advantage for guitarists who like to walk around the stage because you know, guitarists, we all have wireless guitars these days so why stand in one spot you go to stage left and do a lead break go back to your spot whatever you want to do walk around be very animated but your guitar follows you in your ears it doesn't matter where you go it's right there with you so you can always hear every note exactly what you're doing and the mix just stays the same now it's been said and i've heard it said a million million times by so many different people, I feel like it cuts me off from the audience. Okay, that's a valid point. It does take some getting used to. It can be a bit isolating. Now, there are a few ways to help combat this. Ambient room mics is one of them. Um, so you can still just hear the ambience of the room. And when the band stops, you don't want total quiet. You want to hear the crowd reaction it's also quite handy to be able to hear crowd yelling out things to you so you can answer them so that is a way of combating that some of the more expensive um, custom molded iems can have what they call ambient ports in them very very tiny but enough to allow some outside ambience into your ears when the band stops playing so that's another way to combat that However, it's my experience that you do eventually get used to being a little more isolated from the crowd 
And once you experience all the additional benefits and the longer lasting voice and the, the ears not being pounding at the end of the night and all those sort of benefits, once you get used to those benefits, you'll find that you just don't know how you ever got by with a screaming wedge blowing your head off for three or four hours a night. You, you'll just not want to go back to that ever again. Personally, I certainly cringe if I have to go and do a show these days and use Foldback because I just know it's not going to be overly enjoyable. Unless, of course, you have the band playing at a much quieter level and sometimes that's not quite as enjoyable either. Um, so I have built up my own in-ears rack that I take from my whole band. So everybody in my band has their own in-ears. I whack it on the table, plug it in, happy days. And off we go. The other point of contention with IEMs is people say, well, they're really expensive. And yes, they are pretty pricey. However, I've never seen a guitarist balk one eyelid at spending two or three thousand dollars on that guitar that he wants, because that's the you know that's exactly what I want, and it's going to be give me that great sound and whatever. And he won't bat an eyelid at spending the same amount of money on that beautiful guitar rig. The bass player won't bat an eyelid on spending a few thousand dollars on his bass rig. The drummer, he's quite happy to spend thousands of dollars on that beautiful drum kit and whatever it costs for all the cymbals that he wants. Singer loves to have a wireless mic and I've seen plenty of singers out there buy their own because they, they want to be able to walk around, they don't want to have cables holding them on. So we're quite happy to spend money where we perceive that expenditure to be beneficial to us i think what we need to learn is that iems also fall under that category they're beneficial to us how long do you want to be able to keep doing what you're doing do you want to be at 50 and going well i can't go on stage anymore i can't hear anything or actually more to the point it's when you go off stage that's the real benefit you still want to be able to hear stuff when you go home. It's quite easy to keep adding more wedges and turning them up and making it loud. And I have been side stage of some extremely loud shows in their foldback because these guys who were rockers in the 70s and the 80s are just so deaf now that they can't do it any other way. It just has to be so ear-piercingly loud that literally I just can't stand there. I have to go and stand somewhere else. Normally out front of house is actually quieter. So that says a lot. So there's a there's an absolute there are so many benefits to us just as a person, let alone a musician, when it comes to IEMs. Uh, again the biggest other problems faced with IEMs is there's cheap ones, there's intermediate ones, then there's really expensive ones. You can go and buy um, custom moulded IEMs that have 16 drivers in them and the bee's knees, you know, going to give you incredible high fidelity, so on. And you'll spend thousands just on the earbuds. And I mean thousands. 
I can't afford that and nor do I see the need to spend that much money. However, having said that, custom molded IEMs have the far better advantage of almost perfect noise cancelling when you put them in your ears. These things are molded specifically to your ears. So you can't lend them to anybody. They won't fit anybody else. Specifically molded to your ears. So when you put them in, they give you total isolation. So what, you're, what you hear in there is coming from your wireless pack and it cuts out everything else that's going to interfere outside of that. When you buy the Universal Fit IEMs, and personally, I use the Shaw SE535s. Now, when you buy those, they come with a universal foamy sort of end tip on the end of them that are replaceable. You can buy replacements for when they get a bit old and crusty. Now, they, they're not going to give you total isolation, but they're still going to give you pretty good isolation. I, I like the Shaw ones. They... The cable fits over the ear, which makes them a lot more comfortable. Also means the cable's not pulling down on them and going to pull them out of your ear. And I think the 535s have three drivers in them, which gives them a fairly good high fidelity for what I do. But you can just start off with the Shure SE215s, just have a single driver, and they're still... The shape is still the same. They still come with the same foamy bits on the end that you can replace. And they're certainly a good starting point. As far as IEM units, personally, I use the Sennheisers. I have had uh, Shaw's as well. And my very first IEMs were a brand called JTS. Now, that's worth talking about for two minutes because I purchased those... I can't remember how many years ago now, but they were a fairly good price compared to the other brands. And I'd never had IEMs before, so I went, what the heck, I'll give it a go. And I hated them. I absolutely hated them, and I don't think I had them even six months and sold them. And it was another couple of years then before I ventured back into the realm of IEMs. So... My advice there is if you buy too cheap, you could end up with a bad experience that will just turn you away from them for good. So I've now gone with the Sennheisers. I, I did, I was never overly happy with the Shaw. I think I had the PSM 200. And what I was never happy with that was is they would just compress too easily. Uh, when you're trying to get a decent volume level out of them. So if you put too much into them, they would compress and then you just couldn't hear anything anyway. And I just found them a little flimsier, very plastic. They've now since been replaced, I believe, by the PSM 300 model, which seems to be a lot more robust, a lot, lot, a lot better unit compared to the old one. Uh, however, I use the Sennheiser's now as i had those before the psm 300 came out so i'm sort of sticking to the same brand but it's worth noting that the earbuds that come with the sennheiser units in my personal opinion are absolutely worthless 
they they may be good for listening to music on your iPod, and that's about it, um, because they they're not made they don't have the same shape to fit in your ear like the Shure models do, um, and the, I just don't believe the quality of the actual earbuds are as good compared to the Shores. When you buy a Shaw PSM 300 unit, I believe they come with the SE215 earbuds, which is a great starting point. However, if you've already gone with the Sennheisers, um, then I suggest you go and buy yourself a pair of the Shaw earbuds. The 215s are a good, a, a quite a adequate starting point, but in my opinion, I think the 425s are a much better minimum starting point. They're dual drivers. Uh, that'll just give you bit better clarity, better separation of the music in your ears. Uh, and like I said before, I personally use the 535s. Um, I predominantly am a bass player, although occasionally singer and guitar player as well. But because I do play bass and I like to hear that low end, I've gone with the 535s to try and get the most out of my system. And I absolutely love it. So, you know, what are your thoughts? What do you think? I mean, I've heard a lot of people's talk on IEMs and a lot of different takes and people who don't like it because it separates them and people who, the one I love most of all is, I'm old school. Well, okay, you can be old school and, you know, when you're 50 plus, you'll be old school as well, walking around going, what did you say? Because you won't be able to hear anything. And you'll also struggle to get through a decent night of singing because you'll just rip your throat out because you're not going to be able to hear properly. And the less you can hear, the more they've got to pound those monitors, the worse the sound on stage becomes, and it's just a big snowball effect. So my opinion, do yourself a favour. Invest in yourself. Protect your hearing. Get yourself some IEMs. Learn to love them because they'll take care of your ears. They'll take care of your throat as a singer. And once you get used to the integration and into your show, it just makes everything so much easier for you and everybody around you on that stage. When there's no fallback on stage, there's none of that extra sound to combat with. The front of house guy can give you a much cleaner, better sound out the front. All you guys on stage are going to hear everything exactly the way you want it without having to worry about somebody's the guitarist turns up a bit because he can't hear himself then the bass player goes well I need to turn up a bit now because the guitar's too loud then the drummer starts hitting harder because he wants to hear himself over the top of the lot here then the singer can't hear it's just a snowball effect you know what I mean so give it a try tell us your experiences I, I want to hear from people who have been down this road and have avoided it at all costs for so long till eventually they just went bugger it, I'm going to have a go and I want to know your experience. I want to hear from the people who who have loved it and I want to hear from the people who hated it and why. Send me an email to mysay at workingmusic.com.au and give me your experience. IEMs, yay or nay? Personally, I'm a yay and I'll never go back to wedges again. Unless, of course, they're lovely acoustics that sound crystal clear and they don't have to be that loud in front of me anyway. But that's a whole nother story. So moving right along, let's uh, get away from the full-on muso side of things and let's start looking a little bit more at the the technical side of things. 
and uh, the crew, you know, the, the guys who put in the long hours, the ones that are there first and are there last, and they do everything in their power to make sure that you sound and look as good as possible because these are the people that know the show must go on. So that being said, I read an article today about freelance sound engineers and being one myself, uh, I found it quite interesting. It's all about their tool bag and what do they take with them? What's in their tool bag when they go to do a show? Now, this doesn't just necessarily have to relate to audio guys. This uh, is across the board to all technicians, lighting, video, even uh, rigging, stagehands, whatever, whatever role you play. What do you bring to a gig that helps you do your job? So I generally will carry my laptop bag, which of course will have my laptop, iPad, a router. Uh, I normally carry a 3.5 millimeter TRS to 2XLR cable just for running out of somebody's iPod or out of a laptop straight into console. Uh, also, I have a laser measuring device or Disto, very handy for a lot of things, uh, as well as um, being used to get a fairly accurate time alignment on delay speakers. It's uh, just comes in very helpful across the board uh, for anybody and every everybody uh, measuring where things go in a room that when your shows are very tight fit, sometimes everything comes down to almost a millimetre. I carry a bunch of sharpies. We all know what uh, we all know what they're like. You can start off with a dozen, and you'll come home with three. I don't know where the others go. I'm sure they're with all those lost socks in the laundry somewhere. Always carry some electrical tape, and uh, that's pretty much what will be in my laptop bag. Try not to let it get too heavy because you know I've got the power supply for the laptop as well, which adds extra weight. So I tend to try not to carry too much extra bits and pieces just in the laptop bag. But I also have a tool case that's on wheels, pretty much like a Pelican tool case. And inside that, that will have all the other stuff that I just like to have on hand at, at any show that I go to. Because as we all know, over time, the more shows you do, every time you do a show and you go to reach for something that, and you go, I, I don't have that dang it, if I only had that, that would make this easier. You certainly tend to make sure that doesn't happen again and it gets added to your toolkit so it's always with you and slowly but surely your toolkit grows. So my pull-along toolkit will have a cable tester, multimeter, wire cutters. I carry a soldering iron with me for, you know, on-the-job repairs. If it's got to be done, it's got to be done. Uh, adapters and plugs, um, audio all, all the audio adapters and plugs, TRS, Canon, you, you name it, I've, I've got some of everything for any far out situations. I carry different size screwdrivers right down to the jeweler's bits and also the different, um, the different heads with the, the hex bits and the star bits and the whatever you call them. I've pretty much got one of everything because you just never know when you're going to need it. Uh, shifters. Um, I don't know what they're called over in America, but uh, we call them a shifter. A variable wrench, I guess, is another term. 
Um, now, I carry baby wipes in my large tool case, and that might surprise some, but let me give you a little tip. I quite often do shows that involve uh, people dressing up, wearing makeup and all sorts of stuff. One show in particular I do is a kiss tribute show. They tend to get red lipstick all over my microphones. Well, I've got to tell you, a baby wipe straight at the end of the show gets that stuff off like nothing on earth. Like it is just, it just, you want to do it straight away at the end of the show. You don't, definitely don't want to leave it there till you get home or whatever like that. Baby wipes are just fantastic. But they're also good for a number of other things. Also in the Kiss show, they do a bit of uh, blood spitting, all that sort of stuff, which is uh, a very sticky substance that they use. And it's really nice to be able to wipe it up off things immediately before it dries. It can get horrible. So baby wipes are a really handy thing to carry in your toolkit. Well, at least for an audio guy. I carry Glen 20, a nice disinfectant spray. So if I need to touch up any microphones for people, I've got something there that doesn't smell too bad, but also disinfects it so just in case somebody's got a horrible cold or something like that. Uh, I also carry a can of electrical cleaner, uh, sometimes very handy for just cleaning up some uh, noisy pots and stuff on guitar amps and all that sort of stuff. And I carry guitar cables, usually two, maybe three guitar cables, because I don't know how many shows I've gone to and a guitarist has turned up and said, oh crap, I've left my guitar cable somewhere, have you got any spares? So I just carry one, a couple of them with me just to make sure that I can be prepared. And that's what it's all about. You know, when you're, when you're on the tech team, the show must go on and there's quite often there's no time to rush out and or definitely no time to go home because you could be in any part of the state. You could be anywhere. So being prepared as a tech in the music industry is absolutely vital. You've you've got to think ahead. You've got to be able to ascertain all different sorts of outcomes and know how you're going to get around them and, and how you're going to fix the problem before the problem even rises. And this is why we carry all sorts of tools with us. We can't rely on somebody else to have what we need when we need it. So we rely on ourselves to make sure that we have what we need. And that's what's in my toolkit. So what's in yours? I'd certainly love to hear uh, from various techs in various parts of the industry and of the world. Tell me what you carry around with you. What, what are your go-to items? What are the things you can't live without in your tech bag? And what are the things that you carry with you just because you know somebody else is probably going to need it and you want to be prepared? You want to make sure that the show goes on. That's our job, and we have to do it one way or another. So I think we're getting pretty close to the end of this episode, but I just want to touch on something that has just come to light, and this is out of the Sydney Morning Herald, and this certainly relates back to what we were talking about last week, about the decline of the live music industry here in Australia. And it would seem that at least some government agencies are starting to hear our plight and then starting to do something towards rejuvenating the live music industry. Now this 
news story just came out today and it's all about abolishing music bands and bringing back rock to the pubs. I couldn't be happier, let me tell you. So let me just read this article to you and give you some light of what's going on at least in New South Wales here in Australia. Pubs and clubs across New South Wales are being gradually liberated from archaic licensing restrictions as part of the government efforts to revive the state's live music industry and bolster the nighttime economy. In a licensing overhaul by Liquor and Gaming New South Wales, more than 30 venues across New South Wales are now able to provide a greater range of live entertainment, with some pubs permitted to play live music for the first time in decades. At least a dozen pubs spread across the city's suburbs have benefited, including the Civic Hotel in the CBD. Richie Haynes, General Manager for the Universal Hotels Group, which runs the Civic, said the venue had a fabled rock and roll past, having hosted the likes of In Excess and Midnight Oil in the 1980s. But that had changed after the pub was slapped with a liquor licence condition in 1989 that required entertainment by way of rock and roll bands to cease forthwith. When I first saw the condition, it was fairly baffling and amusing, and I just accepted it would probably stay there, Mr Haynes said. Parliamentary inquiry in 2018 found 669 licensed venues were forced to restrict or ban live music and entertainment, with the committee concluding the restrictions were an unnecessary block to employing musicians. Customer Service Minister Victor Dominello said the government had been steadily scrapping the outdated conditions since May 2019, after venues were invited to apply to have them reassessed. We have removed these restrictions on all eligible venues that applied. Any venue that wants their conditions removed can apply at any time, Mr Donanello said. Many of these conditions were imposed decades ago in another era, but serve no purpose at all today. The changes mean that some venues can now host gigs for the first time in many years, while others can offer a broader range of music styles. The Foresters Hotel in Surrey Hills, for example, successfully applied to remove the condition which stipulated there is to be no disco conducted on the first and second floors of the hotel. The Criterion Hotel, also in the CBD, had its ban on live or amplified entertainment lifted, while the Bexley North Hotel in Sydney South no longer has to abide by a condition requiring no rock bands to be engaged after 1st of August 1982. The licensing blitz forms part of the government's attempts to reset its relationship with the live music industry and reap the benefits of a rejuvenated night economy following the repeal of Sydney's strict 1.30am lockouts and 3am alcohol service cutoffs last month. As part of an exposure bill to be released later this month, the government will seek feedback on plans to lift further conditions on live music venues. The proposed changes include immediately removing restrictions on the genre of music and types of instruments that may be played and the number of musicians or live entertainment acts that may perform. Labor MLC John Graham, opposition spokesman for the Nighttime Economy, is also preparing draft legislation that will make it impossible for liquor licences to prevent venues hosting live music. It would also immediately abolish such conditions from the 669 venues identified in the parliamentary inquiry. So that 
ladies and gentlemen, is some of the best news that I have heard for quite some time. This can only mean a positive outcome for the live music industry, at least in New South Wales. Let's hope that other state governments follow suit and start lifting some of these ridiculous restrictions that have been put on the venues that hosted the live music industry. And uh, let's just see where it goes from there. But hopefully this is a plus. And there's the music. And that means it's time to end the show. Thanks for joining me. Uh, My name's Jeff Taylor. This has been Working Music. And we will talk to you all again next week.